passage today comes in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. Thank you so much for being here to worship with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and open up to that text we were just in, in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or you don't own a copy of the scriptures, we have a few under the seats uh, in those little racks. We also have some at our welcome table in the back. We would love to give you a copy of God's word if you don't own one. It's... uh, Uh, It's what we value and treasure the most because in it we hear of our Lord and Savior. Uh, It is the very active living word of God. And so we want you to have a copy of the scriptures that we value so much because we see Christ and we know God because of it. And so uh, if you're new with us, welcome. So glad you are here. Uh, We are working our way through Luke's gospel. We are taking our time, as we like to say, just going slowly, trying to digest all that God has given to us in this gospel so we can can see who this Jesus is. And so we kind of, uh, we looked last week at chapter seven and we, we were asking these questions or we were saying that Luke chapter seven is beginning to sort of uh, give us a more fuller understanding and fuller picture of who this Jesus is. And last week we saw that Jesus is Lord over sickness and Lord even over death itself, our greatest enemy. 
And so we can have hope even in our sickness and even in death that we uh, are not separated. Those of us connected and united with Christ that even death cannot separate us from God because of Christ. And this week, uh, as the text we just heard, we see that this Christ is the promised one, is the long-expected Messiah who has arrived. So quickly, uh, let me pray real quick, and we'll jump into uh, today's message. This is an old Anglican prayer. This is, what we know not, Lord, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, any coffee lovers here? Show of hands. Who loves their morning cup of coffee? Good, that's like the most participation I think I've ever gotten up here. Normally I ask things, no one responds. It's as if you're not here. Like surely he's not talking to me. It's, it's, that shows me right there that uh, we are all just obsessed and maybe even borderline addicted to our morning coffee. Ashley and I love our morning coffee. In fact, um, there are nights where we go to bed and we sort of uh, think about that morning cup of coffee. Is anyone there with me? Kathy is not. I talked to her. She's got a couple of non-coffee drinkers. Uh, That's okay. We still love you. We're glad you're here. But I go to bed sometimes like, I can't wait for that morning cup of coffee. So our routine goes something like this. We, um, uh, we wake the kids up. They're getting ready for school. Ashley's getting ready for work. Uh, I'm helping sort of buzz around. But the very first thing we do is we get the coffee going. We have that sort of first cup so our eyes can actually fully uh, be awake. Uh, and then the kids go off to school. Ashley's off to work. And then I slowly, uh, I'm sort of a little bit behind them, uh, come up to the church here in the office. And I always take a coffee to go. And so uh, probably like uh, all of you, we now for this, it's this strange world we're living in where we've now all amassed and collected 1,600 metal cups, right? And so then I go into the drawer that houses all of the lids to said metal cups, and I can never find the right match. Is this a a Yeti, an Arctic, an Academy one? Uh, One of the giveaways that I got, and I, I never have the matching lid to the right brand of cup. That's okay. And so I take my coffee to work. I usually get down. I, I sit out. I get my laptop out. And Monday morning, I'm kind of responding to different emails and things like that that have come in come in over the weekend. And uh, I usually do this, and I typically forget to like. The, So if you go into my office on a Thursday or Friday, there's like seven metal cups kind of strewn about around my office that I forget to bring home at the end of the day. Can anyone relate to this? They do this in your office at all? Okay, four of you. We're back back to where I'm normally at. Okay, good. Um, uh, And so this particular day, there was a lot of things that had come... come through the desk and I'm uh, grabbing my cup of coffee, my warm cup of coffee. I'm still trying to wake up in the morning and I'm going to take a sip of this delicious, warm, double insulated, Yeti housed cup of Joe. And uh, I take a big sip because it's going to be so delicious and I get what nothing that I expected. I get the seven day old, stale, ice cold cup of, I grabbed the wrong one right? Because there's so many cups all over my office. I just was doing my thing. I grabbed the wrong one and I drank seven day old stale cold coffee. It was, 
Not at all what I expected. It was gross, right? So luckily there's a trash can right next to me. And so I won't give you any of the details. It reminded me of a story uh, that happened to me years and years when I was a youth pastor. Thank the Lord, I don't, I take my coffee black now, but back in the day I used to put a lot of stuff in it and I did the same thing, only it had seven day old cream in there. And let me just, yeah, I'll spare you the details on that one. And so that's, uh, that's on me. You know, that's my, clearly my fault. I have a history of doing this. But the point is this, that sip was nothing like what I was anticipating. It was nothing like what I was expecting. I had in my mind what was going to happen, and it, it did not play out at all like I'd hoped. And when it came to the Messiah, when it comes to Christ, in John the Baptist day, who were we just talking about, the, the name John appears, John the Baptist, there was all sorts of expectations about who this Messiah was and what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. There was all kind of expectation surrounding Messiah based on the scriptures, the prophecies, the hopes, the dreams, and what God's people were expecting this Messiah to do. Most of the people expected this Messiah who they had just heard is this Jesus to roll into town and defeat Rome, their oppressors, to drive them out, to bring Israel and God's people back to the glory days, to eliminate their enemies, to make their enemies a footstool underneath them and to usher in the kingdom of God in their midst. And they expected all of this to happen in a certain way, And much like my coffee experience, Jesus rolls in and it just wasn't all playing out like they thought. It wasn't playing out in the categories they had in their minds. And certainly as we go on, we're going to see that none of them had a category for a crucified Messiah. Um. Jesus was not the Messiah everyone expected. He was different, but he was the Messiah each of us desperately need. And Luke is showing us that through this gospel. And here what we see is an early example of sort of this messianic misunderstanding with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you remember, or if you're a student of your Bible or you've grown up in the church, he was this bold, faithful preacher. He was declaring the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner. He was uh, one that was uh, preparing the way. And now we find John the Baptist, this fiery, faithful, strange wilderness preacher asking these questions. And he's saying, is Jesus really actually the Messiah? And you see that in verses 19 and 20, when twice is repeated, are you the one who is to come? Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Now, this is a very significant text for us, church, uh, and how we grapple and how we deal with and how we understand doubt. John the Baptist here is the doubting prophet. And maybe, church, you're here. Maybe you're sitting here today and you have doubts. Um, Maybe you're a believer and you have some doubts. Maybe you're not a Christian. You were invited by a friend or you just rolled in here. Uh, Maybe you're still grappling with a lot of things and you haven't come to know Jesus because you've got some questions and I want you to see here just at the very surface level that Jesus is not offended by your questions. 
Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He is not put off by your doubt. And I want you to see it is a very good thing to learn from John here to take all of your doubts, to take all of your questions, it takes the things you're struggling with about faith and about how God is moving and who Jesus is and bring them to Christ and ask honest questions. Like, is the, are the scriptures trustworthy? The reality of the resurrection, whatever it may be that you're grappling with, how God is working in your life. How is God working in this crazy world that I'm trying to navigate today? You can bring your questions to Christ. He's not afraid of them. Here's the good news, church, this morning. Jesus has a history of turning doubters into disciples. Amen? That was my story. Jesus has a stellar track record of turning doubters into disciples. It's his specialty, you might say. There's one famous one, Doubting Thomas, that you may have heard of. You may know he gets a bad rap. I think we should call him Believing Thomas. Um, Thomas just had a healthy skepticism. When you think about his story, uh, anything worth truly believing, anything worth believing so much you would live your life in line with it is worth asking hard questions about, is worth some skepticism, is worth some investigation. And Thomas doesn't just go with the flow and say what everyone else is saying. He says, no, I need to see Christ. I need to make sure that there's not been some swap here. I need to make sure this isn't a body double. And then Thomas gives this wonderful confession when he sees Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. And church, if you remember all the way back, if you've been with us since we started Luke's gospel, Luke's entire gospel is written in one sense to deal with our doubts and to deal with our questions. If you remember, Luke begins, Luke the physician, Luke the historian begins writing this gospel all the way back in chapter one. And he tells us why he's writing it. He tells us who he's writing this to. He says, I'm writing this to my friend Theophilus who has questions and he's writing so that if you remember, Theophilus can have certainty regarding the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a good text for us to camp out in as we grapple and deal with our own doubts. And we see here that Jesus is not offended by these questions. He is gracious to John. He gives answer. He could have just blown up, got angry. Well, how can, what do you mean? Just a few chapters ago, you were saying, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And now you're asking, am I the Messiah? He could have been frustrated. He could have been upset or mad. And he's not. He's gentle. And he's gracious. Just like Christ always is, even with doubters. Now we saw this beginning in chapter 7, verse 1 to 10. Jesus is drawn to this faith of this unlikely soldier, this centurion soldier. He's, he's drawn to the grief of this widow last week, if you remember, who lost her son and she is devastated. And Jesus enters into her grief. And now we see Jesus enter into John's place of doubt and question. Christ is compassionate. Um, and he's near to those that are grieving. He's near to those who have questions and have doubts. 
and he longs to take those doubts and turn them into certainty about who he is. And so the text is structured this way, verses 18 through 20, if you are a note taker, is John's question and Jesus' answer. Uh, Verses 24 through 30, Jesus gives us a testimony about John. He doesn't want us to get the wrong impression about John or that John uh, would get a bad rap. He gives us a testimony of the greatness of John's ministry. And then finally in verses 31 and 35, Jesus speaks judgment upon Israel for rejecting both John and himself. And so, uh, this morning, we're going to uh, take a high level and look a little, a little more practically, centering around what Jesus says about doubts and what Jesus says about belief. And so there's a big idea we want to look at, first of all, and then some implications. The big idea, verses 18 through 23, is Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the promised one. So let's look at that together, and then we'll get to the implications of this big idea of Jesus as the promised one. Verses 18 through 23, the disciples of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had all these folks that were following him in the wilderness, his fiery wilderness preaching. They are observing all that Jesus is doing in verse, verse 18. Uh, they've looked at these healings. They looked at the, the raising of the widow's son last week, and they report all of these things to John the Baptist. And John is in a bit of a crisis. We don't really get that in Luke's gospel, but Matthew gives us more context into the crisis uh, that John the Baptist is facing. Luke doesn't tell us for whatever reason. Matthew does. Uh, it's, it's an important point to note that John the Baptist is currently in prison. That's why he has to send some of his disciples, his followers, to go investigate and help answer his question. So he's in prison. Uh, We know as you read the story uh, further on that John will eventually be beheaded for his preaching and for his proclamation of the gospel and telling the truth to high ups in power. It will cost him his life. And he's in prison and he's hearing about all of these things that Jesus is doing. And these reports get back to him and he sends them back to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Are you the one, Jesus? Or should we look for someone else? Um, We're not told exactly why he asked this question, but... We're simply told that he does ask the question. Remember John the Baptist, the one boldly preaching in the wilderness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not fit to untie the the buckle of his sandal, he says about Jesus. He's preparing the way. And how did he get to this point? Whether he's he's questioning and he's doubting, are you the one or is is there someone else coming? Um. And I think the reason that John is grappling with this is found all the way back in chapter three, verses 16 and 17. They won't be on the screen. I'm gonna read them quickly. But it's, it's, it's the things that Jesus says that he is, that, that John says that this Messiah will do. If you remember, it's this fire and brimstone sermon almost that John is preaching. He says his winnowing fork will be in his hand. He's, John's preaching to all these people in the wilderness. They're like, Jesus is coming and a winnowing fork is gonna be in his hand and he's gonna clear the threshing floor and he's gonna gather the weed into the barn and the chaff. He will burn away with unquenchable unquench, fire. 
And so John uh, is preaching this like, this Messiah that's coming, he's coming with a winnowing fork and he is gonna clean house. And he's gonna burn away all those that are bad and he's gonna keep all the good and he's gonna gather for himself his people. The problem I think John is struggling with is Jesus wasn't burning up any chaff yet. He hadn't picked up his winnowing fork. John had preached this fiery judgment that's coming from the Lord and it hasn't happened. And John is sort of stuck in the middle. He's stuck between the times, if you will, between what he's observing Jesus is doing and what Jesus will one day do. And John is doubting in his present circumstance. And doubt is arising. He's sitting in a prison cell. And he knew what Jesus would do, but it's not happening. So he's like, are you the one? I thought you, well, this is what you were gonna do. One commentator put it well. He said, the terrible swift sword that was to be laid at the root of the trees is turning out to be terribly slow. Terribly, terribly slow. The only trampling that was getting done was on John's head. He was captive, John was, and he was not being set free. Um, The sword was gonna come later. The judgment was going to come later. And John's sitting here facing the reality of, my head is on the chopping block. Jesus, you're preaching about setting captives free and I'm in prison. Liberating the captives? What about me? And so he's grappling with some serious questions that have serious consequences laid out before him. I'm stuck in this prison. Jesus, things are moving terribly slow. Get to work. What are you doing, essentially? Are you the one? Go back and ask him. And so he sends off his disciples, his followers to ask Jesus because doubt has creeped into his heart and into his mind. And for all of us, we can relate to this. When things are going slowly, when our pleading prayers are not answered, when we're wondering how and when the Lord is gonna show up in the ways that he promised and it doesn't seem like he is, what happens to all of us? We begin to doubt his goodness we begin to doubt his promises. We begin to doubt, is he really who he says he is? And John is no different. He's struggling. And he says, go ask him. Can, and if you can imagine, so these men arrive in verse 21, the ones that he sends, and they, found, they find Jesus engaged in healing the sick, liberating uh, the demonized, giving sight to the blind, and so on. And so uh, you... You kind of, I wonder, this, this is almost like a, it's not a funny moment, but it is a little bit. It's like these guys roll up on Jesus and he's like doing all these amazing messianic things that only through the power of God can be done. And these guys go up reluctantly. I can imagine it's like, oh, no, you ask him. No, you ask him. No, you go ask him. Like, I don't want to ask him. And they're like, just, it's all, there's this amazing ministries happening. And they're like, are you the one? And they walk up. In the middle of all of this, I mean, it would be like walking up to Michael Jordan after his, like, after just, he just won the championship and scored a million points and had all these rebounds. 
are you any good at playing basketball? It's just like the ludicrous question. So it's almost this comic moment where these guys are having to ask Jesus and he just responds with, go tell John this. Go tell them what you've both seen and heard. Just tell them what you've just observed. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Um, Jesus is telling John through these followers that he's basically doing everything that he said he would in the Nazareth sermon. Remember, he gets up in his hometown, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, you've just observed everything I said I would do is coming to pass preaching good news to the poor, liberating the captives. And with each new miracle, we see with more and more clarity that Jesus is the one who is to come. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus is using at least sort of four texts from Isaiah to give us, uh, to give John his answer. One of them found out of Isaiah 35 that John the Baptist would have been familiar with as he heard this come back to his report. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. John would have undoubtedly known these passages. And these words that get reported back to him, Jesus is giving him biblical proof. He says, I'm doing these things that the scriptures said the Messiah would do. And you've seen them come to pass. So church, we have good reason to believe in Jesus. It is not a blind leap of faith. We have a reasonable faith. Jesus gives John good reasons to trust in him, to believe in him. It is not a blindfold and just jump into it. No, we, it is a reasonable faith that we have, clinging to Christ, trusting in Christ. And so here's the big idea. Yes, John, I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I'm doing the things that Messiah was promised he would do. And all of these people are seeing it. And all of these people know it. And all of these people are experiencing the blessing of it. Now, the implications. The first one, verse 23. Blessed are those who, he says, are not offended by me. Jesus solidifies this claim by being the Messiah with this almost like little beatitude. We just came off of the Sermon on the Plain. It's like he's giving another little one, like another little mini beatitude here, another statement of blessing on those who believe. So blessed are those who believe and are not offended or happy or fulfilled are those who believe and are not offended by him. He's saying, John, rise above your doubts. Put all your faith and trust in me. I am trustworthy. Let that rule in your hearts. And this is true of all of us. Blessed are you if you believe in him. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have trials, that we don't have things that creep up, that we don't have heartache, that we won't have doubt, but we're blessed if we cling to him and we're not offended by him. And we're not offended by the cross 
that he would eventually go to and hang on for our redemption. Luther put it well, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. There is no other savior. There is no other hope for salvation. Let's not be offended by him. Let's not be ashamed of him. Let's trust in the ways that he is working. Let's trust in the ways that he's moving in the world and let's put all of our trust in him. He is the promised Messiah. And we need to be reminded here. Also, I think Christ wants to know uh, of who John is and not sort of just paint him in a bad light because he was doubting, but we need to put him in the proper light because we know that John eventually finishes well. Um, Yes, he had questions. Yes, he was struggling. And I hope all of us can relate to that. He brings his questions to Christ. But eventually we know that he was faithful to the end. He was beheaded for preaching the truth. Think about that. Your whole ministry marked by faithfulness, marked by proclaiming, in this, proclaiming this Messiah, bringing even your doubts and having those answered by Jesus himself and then standing on the truth of who Jesus is and the claims of Messiah that he is the new king to come and it cost him his head for telling the truth. Christ is sufficient in the highs and in the lows. And one day church, our faith will end in sight, just like it has for John. And there will be no shadow of a doubt that he is the promised one whom John was pointing us to all along. Secondly, we see in this text, the verses 24 through uh, 30, that those who believe in him uh, are great and experience the privileges of being God's children. So we have these uh, amazing implications. We have these amazing privileges that are bestowed upon us because of Christ and because of his redemption he brings. And it's similar to the previous implication, but it's sort of teased up a little bit more, uh, teased out a little bit more as Jesus clears up any miscommunication about John. He says this, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Jesus says, when you guys went out to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist, why did you go out there? Did you just go out there to stare at the reeds? Did you just say, like, kind of grab your buddies and be like, hey, what are you guys doing today? I don't know, let's just go out to the wilderness and stare at the reeds. That'd be fun. It's like, no, that's not why you went out there. Did you go out to see kind of this crazy guy in his luxurious, cool sandals? No, he was dressed in camel's hair. He ate locusts. You didn't go out to see him because he was a fashion statement, because he was a fashion icon. He was strange. He wore camel's hair. He ate a strange diet. You didn't go out there to just stare at the reeds or to watch and see what type of uh, new shoes he might be wearing. That wasn't why you went to see and hear John. Um, No one's going out there for those reasons. No one wants to see him there. Why did you go? You went into the wilderness to see and hear John because of his preaching, because he was unique, 
because he was steadfast. He wasn't fickle. He wasn't tossed to and fro. People didn't go out to see his fashion or to just stare at a, a reed blowing in the wind. People flocked to John because Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, because he's more than a prophet. He was the prophet that was prophesied about. That's why you went. That's what makes him unique. He was in, he's, John the Baptist stood in this unique place in redemptive history that the prophets prophesied about this other prophet. Malachi uh, speaks about him. In chapter three, verse one, Jesus highlights and says, John had a privileged, amazing role. He was great. He introduced people to the Messiah, Jesus is telling them. He says in verse 28, among those born of women, not including Jesus himself, none is greater than John. That's a striking statement coming from Jesus. He just said, of anyone ever born, Jesus says, of anyone ever born in the history of humanity, none is greater than John the Baptist. How's that for a recommendation? In case you had any doubts about John and his faithfulness. So sorry, Caesar, it's not you. Uh, Sorry, Abraham, can you imagine? Greater than eight. Sorry, Moses. John, the locust eating, strange prophet in the wilderness. No one is greater than he. The greatest man to ever live, to ever be born of women. Well, a couple things about that statement. Uh, so we are not tempted to worship John. I think Jesus is speaking about John's role, not his character. He's not saying that his character has surpassed all these other great uh, figures of the faith. His character isn't necessarily uh, brighter and greater than Isaiah or Moses or Abraham or any of our other heroes of the faith. But he had this incredible role and privilege that he got to lean into in his life. He had the privilege of introducing people to the Messiah. John's greatness came in readying God's people for God's salvation. And he completed his task. And I think um, that's accurate based on what Christ says next. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, He's now lumping all of us who now believe in Christ are greater than the greatest one to have ever been born up until that moment. These are interesting words that Christ is saying. Why? Not because our character is gonna surpass that of John the Baptist. Why would Christ say such a thing? What is he speaking of? What is this greatness he's speaking of? It's because we live on this side of the resurrection. John might say, although it may strike us as funny, John the Baptist is referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's written about in our New Testament. 
He is the last of the Old Testament prophets, meaning he is the last prophet preparing the way, declaring the Messiah is coming. Salvation is coming. Hope in the Messiah, the long-awaited one, is arriving. He is different because he got to actually see Christ with his own eyes, but he didn't get to see all of the fulfillment of that which Christ would do. All the other prophets that came before John were just sort of like a shadow. They saw, they saw shadows. John saw it personally, right? And John knew Christ personally. And then Jesus says something stunning. He says, those who believe are greater than John. And not in terms of our character, but in terms of our greatness and our privileges of being in the family of God on this side of redemptive history. So in terms of the redemptive timeline, I think this is what Jesus is getting at. The disciples, those of us who are united in Christ... This side of the cross and resurrection, think about it, how much more we have gotten to see and experience than John. We now get to point people to Jesus with even more clarity than John. We've seen the whole picture. We've seen the whole story. Even the greatest in the old covenant are not equal to the position of the lowest in the new covenant, Christ is saying. That's why we read texts, these strange texts, like First Peter, that tell us that the prophets of old and even the angels long to look into the gospel. Isn't that fascinating? The prophets, all the prophets of old, and even angels, they long to look into the gospel that we have. That's how privileged we are as kingdom citizens united in Christ because of the cross and resurrection. Even prophets and angels. I just wish I could do that. I wish I could be there for that. Those of us now in the new covenant, Christ is saying, have more greatness and privileges in the kingdom than even the one who announced the coming of this new covenant. So church, don't think that we haven't been given a great gift in this time that we're in. Sometimes we read about all these stories of old and they're wonderful and they're amazing, but we have the whole story. Um, we have received Christ. Christ has then given to us the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to cry out today, Abba, Father, we have access to the very throne room of God. We are a part of the priesthood of all believers. We can take people to God in prayer. And we can take God to other people in evangelism. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that if Moses and the prophets could speak, they would long to be in the days we are in now. Doesn't that blow your mind to think about? If Moses could switch places, so to speak, they, they would long to be in the days that we're in, that the gospel, and they could understand it and speak it and share it. They would have gladly traded places 
That's how special it is to share in the salvation that Christ and Christ alone has brought. Verse 28. Um, There's some surprises about who responds. It's kind of in that parenthetical comment. Um, And when the people heard this, and I love this, and the tax collectors too, so all these people heard all this, parentheses, side note, and the tax collectors too. Tax collectors, the lowest of the low, the most despised, the most hated are getting in on this great salvation. Christ inviting the lowliest, the outcast, to all who would embrace him. Jesus is the promised one to those who believe they are blessed and to those who cling to him and believe we have great, amazing privileges of the family of God in Christ, that we are in this side and on this side of redemptive history. It should swell your heart in worship. And thirdly, all who believe In Christ are wise. Verse 31, Jesus is still talking to this crowd. Um, He's reflecting on the statement that was just made. He looks around at the present generation, all the people that are listening to him, uh, all the, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, all these different folks that are listening. And he sort of gives us an idea and understanding of what all these folks are like. He gives us uh, almost a cultural commentary Um, And Jesus is masterful at uh, giving illustrations. And he gives such a vivid illustration here. And it's sort of strange when we read it. We're like, what is he talking about? There's like children singing and a dirge and crying and laughing. What's going on here? But it's really a wonderful, um, a wonderful little parable, if you will, that show people and expose their hearts of who they really are and where they're currently at. And Jesus says that all of these people are like children sitting in a marketplace. And they're calling out to one another. They're like calling back and forth to each other across the streets. Like when a bunch of kids are playing in the street, you know, when your kids are, if you have children and they're little, there's the group of all the little street rats and they're all like, I want to play this. No, I want to play this. He's kind of setting up this kind of moment, right? And, uh, it's like he's, he's telling them, all of you are like children in the street calling out to each other what game you want to play today. And they call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you, and, but you, none of you danced. Um, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. And what's Jesus saying? Some, some call it the parable of the brats, which I think is funny. Um. And so he's, he's explaining and he's like explaining this, this generation as one group saying, we want to play this. No, we want to play this. No, we want to do this. No, that's not right. We want to do this. And so we want to play wedding. No, that's not right. We want to play funeral. No, that's not right. And so no one's having much joy and there is no weeping. The, the games, they don't, they don't translate. They're, they reject both of them essentially. So both groups of people are not singing and they're not weeping based on what they should be playing. 
There's a, the funeral dirge isn't moving them and the wedding play isn't creating any joy. And Jesus likens this little analogy to this generation. And essentially what he's saying is he says, they're not satisfied. You're not satisfied with John the Baptist and his message. And you're not satisfied with mine. John comes as this strange prophet in the wilderness, practicing amazing self-denial, proclaiming a message of salvation that's coming. And he's calling the nation to repentance, a dirge, if you will. Repent, get ready, ready yourself. The Messiah is coming. And you don't even call him holy. You say, he's got a demon in him. And then you look at me, Jesus is saying. And it's like, well, John, he's, he's weird, but the Messiah, he's wild and careless. Um, we don't like weird John and we don't like wild, careless Christ, Jesus. He, he associates with gluttons and drunkards. He must be one too. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's careless. How could the Messiah that we've all been waiting for hang out with riffraff lowlives like this? So we have the holy, fiery prophet. We don't like him. And we have this one that has dined with sinners and tax collectors, the very bottom of the barrel. We don't like him either. Well, church, Christ is not a drunkard. He is not a glutton, but praise God. He is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Amen? He says, this is this generation. John, they dismissed. Me, they're dismissing. They don't want to play the game. They look at Jesus, they dismissed him too and said, we don't want to play that game either. And then Jesus summarizes it by saying, wisdom is justified by all their children. Wisdom is revealed in otherwise, in other words, in all those who respond to God on his terms in his way, not yours. God in his wisdom sent John as the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. And those who follow him are shown to be wise. Tax collectors and sinners and everyone who gets in on this good news of Christ as he has come show that they are wise because they see God's ways and they want to walk in God's ways. So to those who believe they are wise, so is Jesus the promised one? All the way back to that very first question. Yes, he is. Church, this morning, he's worthy of all of our trust. He is worthy of all of our belief. It is not a blind leap of faith. It is a reasonable faith. He is to be trusted. He is the one whom the the scriptures pointed to and talked to. He's the one of the final forerunner. The last prophet of the Old Testament says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes. Even John in his humanity begins to doubt. Jesus enters in, engages his doubts, 
and he finishes well. He's worthy of it all. So if you are here and you are in a period of doubt, you are in a period of questioning, I pray that your faith might be strengthened today through this text. Second Thessalonians, Paul tells the church, I thank God that your faith is growing abundantly. May our faith grow abundantly today because of this good word. And as a result, church, take hope that knowing that our faith will one day result in sight. Let us not doubt Christ and his message and his ministry and his identity. Let us not doubt his care for us. Even in our struggles and doubts, he enters into those places. Let's hear his response to us and know that he cares for us. Paul says that God proved his love in this way, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated it. He proved it. Lest we doubt his care for us, we only need to look to the cross. If you doubt for a moment that he loves you and that he is for you and that he wants to uh, have you follow him and he wants to forgive you, just look to the cross. The cross happened. It happened. It was real. Paul says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If he did that redemptive act of dying on the cross for us, will he not be with you even in the small things? Yes, he will. He didn't redeem us just to leave us. He redeemed us to walk with us, to comfort us, to grant to us and give us the gift of the Holy Spirit that would walk with us through this life to bring us to full completion in faith. Let's trust in church today. You are blessed if you do. You have the privileges of being in the family of God on this side of redemptive history. It's amazing. And if you believe him and you cling to him and trust him, the scripture says you are wise to do so. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your good word. Jesus, thank you that you are the master of taking doubters and turning turning us, me included, into disciples. Lord, we're unworthy of the calling. We've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I place myself firmly in the camp of Christ coming for sinners and tax collectors, me being the worst of all. Thank you that you can take take us and redeem us and shape us and mold us and save us. And so God, I pray that our hearts would swell with gratitude of all that you've done. Lord, I pray for anyone in here that is struggling with doubt, that they would take their questions to you, Christ, that they would open up the word, that they would engage with you through your word, that they would get in community, that they would meet some friends here at Risen to engage their doubts so that they could be pointed to the trustworthiness of our Lord and Savior, the risen Christ. Strengthen our faith today through your word. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. And we're grateful for you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship Christ.